Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by my course, Rest Assured. If you've been struggling with falling asleep, or staying asleep, or just not waking up feeling well-rested, you've come to the right place. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI, is the gold standard intervention in the management of insomnia. Rest Assured is a digital course that walks you through CBTI, step-by-step, with everything you need to succeed. Each of the six weekly modules guides you through some important background information for the different techniques, explores the evidence-based techniques in detail, provides multiple examples of exercises so you can find the one that works for you, and reviews the work you've completed since the last module. And rest assured, it's just not another DIY left to your own devices, but rather, you get direct access to me, a board-certified sleep physician in twice-monthly office hours, where you can ask me face-to-face any questions you may have about the course material. So check out www.wellrestedmd.com slash RA to learn more. That's wellrestedmd.com slash RA. Or just head to the homepage and click on courses to learn more. Enjoy the episode. You're listening to the Well Rested Podcast, episode number 35, Glymphatics. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Lennon. It is becoming increasingly clear that the number one risk factor for dementia is the quality of your sleep. In this week's episode, I'll be discussing how sleep could possibly be related to conditions of neurodegeneration like Alzheimer's dementia. You've heard me discuss all the way back to the first episodes the risks that poor sleep can pose. Some of these risks are obvious, like clearly feeling tired the day after a night of little to no quality sleep. Others are not quite as obvious, like the risk for heart disease, stroke, cancer, or sudden death from snoring and obstructive breathing during sleep. And still others, like neurodegeneration, can take literally decades to play out. In episode 26, I discussed some of the associations between sleep and learning, the formation of new memories, the reinforcement of new memories, and the retrieval of newly formed memories. You may know from experience that after an all-nighter or a bad night of sleep, that mentally you're just not as sharp, brain fog, slow to process, need to repeat things. One night of poor sleep can make mental functioning the next day more difficult. The ability to retain new information can be impaired. The ability to retrieve recently acquired information can be impaired and even the ability to recall older memories can also be impaired. But after a night of recovery sleep, we bounce back pretty well. So if our experience is that one night of decent sleep appears to erase whatever deficits were there, how and why could there be any longer-lasting effects? And if there are longer-lasting effects, wouldn't you be aware of them all along? And what do I mean by this term neurodegeneration? We see degeneration used in a few contexts in modern medicine, most notably in degenerative joint disease. Whereas a sudden traumatic fracture can be corrected, healed, and you're basically as good as new, degeneration implies that there are irreversible changes, that the foundation for normally functioning tissue withers away, less and less capable of function as time marches on. So with arthritis, as the knee joint or hip joint degenerates more and more, the only thing left to do may be actually just to replace the biological joint with a synthetic one. Or degenerative disease in the spine a surgeon may fuse the bones together if the gelatinous disc in between them has degenerated, fallen apart too much to ever be repaired or restored. Neurodegeneration refers to the same kind of biological decay, only in the brain. That the fabric of our mental lives, the structural tissue that makes up the brain, starts to break down just like the bone and cartilage and fluid and tendons and ligaments that make up a joint can break down irreparably. With neurodegeneration, rather than a joint breaking down, we get the loss of brain tissue loss of brain cells and all their connections. As we lose the hardware for thinking and feeling, we do less thinking and feeling. When there are fewer and fewer brain cells to integrate with, our integrative and associative memory loses logarithmically the capacity to remember. 
each neuron on average has about 10,000 connections with other brain cells. So as we lose more and more cells, the possible combinations of connections between remaining available neurons is lost exponentially. As a result, the course over time appears as very little change, very little cognitive decline over the first many years or even decades, followed by a dramatic loss over the course of a couple years, and then accelerating only further over the next few years, seemingly out of the blue, despite the origins of decay seeded decades prior. This nonlinear rate of decline, due to the nonlinear rate of brain cell connections lost, is confounding to many onlookers. It is too easy to dismiss any subtle or minimal changes in the first several years, the majority of the course of neurodegeneration, only to be baffled by how quickly things change over the course of a very short amount of time, from living independently to needing 24-hour care in order to survive. So what does sleep have to do with neurodegeneration? Clearly, it's not just about feeling excruciatingly tired every day for decades, like when you pull an all-nighter and don't feel as sharp. It has to do with why we do feel better after a night of good sleep, why we may feel restored after a good night of rest. You've heard me discuss repeatedly the role of adenosine, especially in relation to our sleep drive. The longer we are consecutively awake and brain cells are doing work, they are creating waste in the form of more than just carbon dioxide. Adenosine is one of these waste products, but there are many others. Adenosine concentration is very low right after waking. As the brain is awake and doing work, more adenosine is created. Now, it is cleared during wakefulness too, just very slowly, so there is a disproportionate increase in concentration across the day relative to the small amount of clearance. Then, during sleep, adenosine is still created as a waste product, but there is a disproportionate clearance relative to new additions. We see similar cycling with two very important proteins in the brain. One is called beta amyloid, or just amyloid, and the other is tau. Neurodegeneration of the Alzheimer's type, Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia, accounting for about half of all cases. Alzheimer's dementia is neurodegeneration, brain cell death from inflammation and other changes due to the accumulation of toxic levels of these two proteins, beta amyloid and tau. When too much amyloid accumulates, it forms sheets of this sticky protein that aggregate into clusters we call plaques, amyloid plaques. When tau proteins accumulate, they are tagged by phosphorus and form clusters we call tangles, or phosphorylated tau tangles. It is the overabundance, the high concentrations of these protein aggregations, that causes inflammation in the brain and essentially triggers brain cell suicide. Too much of these proteins leads to brain cell death. Too much brain cell death leads to too little hardware to think, which we express as cognitive decline, most notably in memory loss, but loss of all kinds of mental function can occur, from loss of inhibition to loss of coordination to loss of orientation and more. So just like adenosine, there's also a daily cycling of these two naughty proteins, amyloid and tau. There are multiple lines of evidence converging on this central dogma of the development of dementia. We see this play out in serum and blood tests, by looking at cerebrospinal fluid, by using non-invasive imaging tests like PET scans, and with animal models, as well as cross-sectional, small cohort, and population-level analyses how critical, how central, the role of sleep and circadian biology is in the development and acceleration of neurodegeneration. And just like adenosine, we see that shortly after waking, levels of tau and amyloid are quite low. And the longer that we are awake, the longer our brains are doing work, taking in resources and energy, performing work and creating waste, some of these waste products come in the form of amyloid and tau. So across the day, across wakefulness, levels of these proteins are progressively increasing. This diurnal increase in amyloid and tau is a normal, natural byproduct of having a human brain and being awake. During the normal waking day, the concentration of these proteins nearly doubles from wake onset to sleep onset. And while there is some clearance during wakefulness, 
there's much more efficient and effective clearance of these proteins during sleep and circadian night, and specifically during one stage of sleep. But there is still some clearance, so even after a full night of sleep deprivation, the concentration of amyloid and tau may be 30-50% to 50% higher than usual from that lost opportunity to more effectively clear out these proteins. Now that special part of sleep where our brains are so much more effective at getting rid of these dementia-causing proteins is the third stage of non-REM sleep, called N3, also known as deep sleep or slow-wave sleep. This goes back to what I discussed all the way back in episode 1. Even if you get 8 hours of sleep, you may still feel poorly rested, if the composition of those 8 hours was off, if you didn't achieve enough N3 or slow-wave sleep, which should comprise about 20% of your sleep. Less N3, filling in the gaps with lighter sleep or even awake, can leave you feeling poorly rested, even with sufficient quantity of sleep, because of that lost opportunity to perform what the brain does specifically during N3 sleep, which is to take out the trash. One way to think about the utility of N3 sleep is this. Imagine the faucet is running all day long and the sinks and tubs are overflowing. The drains are open, but they're only the size of a straw, an outflow of a quarter of an inch. The amount of water coming out of the faucets exceeds the rate of flow that can be drained out through the straw, so the net effect is a gradual accumulation of water. Then, once you get into N3 sleep, it's like the drain changes from the size of a straw to a six-foot diameter sewer pipe. All of a sudden, in a tenth of the time that the water's been accumulating, you have to be achieving about an hour and a half of slow-wave sleep per night compared to 16 to 18 hours of wake across the day, in a tenth of the time, the brain can drain away all that accumulated water very quickly, very efficiently. But now imagine that one night, you didn't get that six-foot diameter sewer pipe, and you were only draining through the straws because you didn't get any sleep, or didn't get enough deep sleep. Now you start the next morning far more flooded than usual because you couldn't drain as usual during sleep. And every night that you fail to effectively drain all that wastewater, the larger and larger the flood becomes, and the more and more damage it causes. Or imagine if the garbage truck didn't take away your weekly trash accumulation. Waste is still being produced, so after another week, you'd have twice as much as usual. Or if waste management services didn't come to your house for a month, it was quadrupled the normal amount of trash. Or imagine that a garbage truck never came ever again. But instead, once a week, a boy on a bicycle rode by your house and took away only a handful of your waste at a time. Yes, there was still some waste going away, but not even close to matching the rate at which it's being produced. What would happen to the functionality of your home if you were never able to get rid of any of your trash again, or at least in quantities necessary to make a dent in the ever-growing lot of it? You would suffocate in that waste. You'd literally be held captive by your trash. And that's how the brain feels when you don't get enough deep sleep. Again, even if you're achieving enough sleep overall, it is the amount of that deep sleep, that slow-wave N3 sleep, that amplifies your waste removal capabilities. So what is happening during N3 sleep that's so special? Simply put, the structure and shape of brain tissue changes. So what otherwise appeared as nearly solid tissue is now strewn with a large series of canals that allow the flow of fluid to pass through them, carrying with it the metabolic debris like a river carrying fallen leaves downstream. For a very simplified anatomy lesson, our main thinking brain cells are called neurons but the neurons don't act in a vacuum, but bring with them an entourage of support cells. There are specialized support cells called astrocytes that change their shape and shrink during N3. Imagine a hardwood floor of 100 side-by-side -side planks of 4-inch white oak. Then suddenly, the plank's width shrinks, and now there are 100 side-by-side -side planks of 2-inch white oak. That creates a whole lot of gaps. Not good if you're trying to walk across it. Or imagine a net woven with 100 yards of 1-inch diameter rope like the sack my old gym teacher used to carry tennis balls, basketballs, and giant rubber balls for kickball. Then suddenly, the threads shrink down to one-tenth of an inch. So now maybe the sack can still net the larger objects like basketballs and kickballs, 
but there's enough space in between that ping pong balls and tennis balls fall right through the holes. So with the sponge wrung out, these astrocyte support cells in the brain squeeze down to a shrunken state, there's a lot more open space around the neurons. Nature abhors a vacuum, so this potential space just opened up in N3 sleep is filled by fluid, interstitial cerebrospinal fluid. But this is no standing water. On the contrary, recent data shows that slow waves of N3 sleep, the large amplitude electrical discharge that characterizes this stage of sleep, is triggering series of tidal waves. Big electrical discharges causing waves of fluid movement. So now there is a rush of fluid coursing through these newly opened up channels in between brain cells, like a river eroding away debris on the shoreline. These pulsations of fluid, these tidal waves, carry away the metabolic waste, the metabolic debris that is accumulated by the neurons. When we enter N3 sleep, it's like a road suddenly opens up between you and your neighbor, so that now finally the garbage truck can pass through and collect all your waste to carry it away. But once N3 terminates, you go back to zero lot line, accessible only by a sidewalk, far too narrow for any vehicles to traverse, let alone a trash truck to pick up your waste. The name for this funny system of suddenly appearing canals is the glymphatic system. The lymphatic system in the rest of the human body helps to transport away waste from other tissue, but these permanent pipes don't exist inside the skull. But the temporary shape-shifting by the glial cells, these support cells called astrocytes, provides a functional equivalent during sleep, the so-called glial lymphatics or glymphatic system. The glymphatics are the larger sewer pipes. The glymphatics are the garbage trucks. During N3 sleep, the space opens up. Slow waves of electrical activity pulse waves of fluid through these spaces, carrying away debris, specifically clearing out beta amyloid and tau. The glymphatic system, present only during deep sleep, is the mechanism by which the brain cleans itself literally washing itself clean, wiping off these proteins of amyloid and tau. Every day we are awake, these proteins accumulate, and overnight, when we achieve enough deep sleep, slow wave and three sleep, we literally wipe the slate clean, reversing in a very short time what took 16 hours to accumulate. And the next day, repeat and rinse and repeat and rinse and repeat and rinse every day. But I hope you can see how easily we can run into trouble. If we don't get enough N3 sleep, we don't get enough opportunity to wash the brain, to clear out all that junk, to remove these building blocks of Alzheimer's dementia. When our brains are more active, when we are intellectually stimulated, when we are more socially stimulated, when we are more physically active, these daytime activities significantly influence our ability to achieve that high-quality N3 sleep that night. The more active our wake, the more soundly we sleep precisely because we achieve more N3 sleep. On the flip side, the less active our days, the less stimulated we are intellectually, the less socially active we are, the less physically active we are, our brains didn't get the chance to build up that sleep pressure, to accumulate that spring tension to achieve enough N3 sleep. The less active our days, the less N3 that night. With less N3 achieved, the less we clear out junk like amyloid and tau. The less active our days, the greater the accumulation of toxic proteins. The less active our days, the greater the risk for neurodegeneration. This is also why I have such beef with certain medications. Some medications affect neurochemistry, many do not. Some medications affect neurochemistry in a way that deprives the brain of the functional ability to get N3 sleep. Many of the pills that people swallow with the hope of fixing their sleep do this very thing of depriving them, chemically prohibiting them from achieving the very thing they desire. The reason why some drugs are more dangerous in increasing the risk for dementia is specifically because they rob you of your N3 sleep. 
When you take a pill that reduces or eliminates your N3 sleep, you've furloughed all of the brain's waste management. By taking that pill, by sacrificing deep sleep for the convenience of feeling sedated, or just for the placebo effect, you've locked your brain out of its own maintenance and well-being. Less N3, greater accumulation of waste like amyloid and tau, greater likelihood of dementia. And your brain is naive. It does not care whether you're getting no deep sleep because you've only walked 100 steps total today, or whether you're taking a slow-wave assassinating drug. The result is the same. Not only might you feel the next morning like the quality of your sleep is poor, but brick by brick, amyloid plaque by amyloid plaque, tau tangle by tau tangle, the foundation for neurodegeneration of Alzheimer's is being built. This is not to say that one bad night here or there dooms you to destruction. Not at all. In fact, and fortunately so, it appears that at least years, if not decades, is required to lay this foundation. The problem, and the opportunity, lies in that we are creatures of habit. We are more likely to habitually not get enough physical activity rather than a one-off. We are more likely habitually taking medications that can rob us of deep sleep rather than just once. But on the flip side, that leaves us enormous opportunity. No one's fate is sealed. Every day, every night, we have the opportunity to give ourselves the best shot at serving our brain health. Every day is a new chance to engage in habits and behaviors that facilitate high-quality, deep, slow-wave N3 sleep. And the more habitual that becomes, the more and more brain trash our glymphatics can take out. So in summary, these are the same themes that keep coming up over and over again. Good sleep helps. Poor sleep hurts. Good habits help sleep. Bad habits hurt sleep. And over the last decade especially, it is becoming increasingly clear the pivotal role that sleep plays in brain health not just in memory formation as discussed in episode 26, not just in mental and emotional health, such as in regard to dreams like in episode 19, but sleep quality is the make-or-break risk factor when it comes to neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. And the key really seems to be the third stage of non-REM sleep called N3 or deep sleep or slow-wave sleep. This part of sleep should account for about a fifth of your total sleep time. During N3 sleep, support cells in the brain morph and shrivel causing space to open up between them for water to flow through like little canals. Then the electrical discharges of the large amplitude slow waves, hence the term slow wave deep sleep, these electrical waves trigger fluid waves, pulsations of tidal waves pushing through these newly opened pathways around neurons, carrying away with them all kinds of waste and metabolic debris, including two key proteins called beta amyloid and tau, that when left uncleared, will accumulate and cluster together into clumps that are the literal building blocks of Alzheimer's dementia. The greater the loss of deep sleep, the greater the risk of dementia. And likewise, the greater the deep sleep, the lesser the risk. And since these pathologies build up over years before causing any obvious symptoms, there's an overwhelming opportunity to improve your health and well-being and improve your chances of living dementia-free by forming and maintaining the habits that facilitate good sleep. I've got a little handout for you, so if you head over to wellrestedmd.com day, you can get a free cheat sheet to a day in the life of the well-rested, including some specific best practices to get that good snooze. That's wellrestedmd.com slash D-A-Y. Be sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to get all the latest episodes. Leave us a review and head over to wellrestedmd.com for more information. Thanks for listening.